Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the Battle of New Orleans. Now, this is a battle that took place technically during the War of 1812, but also technically after it had finished, depending on your, your point of view, your perspective here. It's a very interesting one, and all sorts of crazy stuff emerging from this battle. Uh, very emblematic of the war itself, I think. All sorts of ridiculousness coming out of this uh, this particular story. So we will have a chat about it again underway, as promised last week with the War of 1812. Going to finish things off this week with the Battle of New Orleans. So we did hear about the War of 1812 last week. Began, of course, due to trade restrictions, the British curtailing US westward expansion, impressment of American sailors, and uh, generally sort of Madison's you know, huge supreme eagerness to to get stuck in and chuck some punches around for his young country. Uh, failed attempts by both the US to invade Canada and the British to invade the US. Uh, Washington gets burnt to the ground. We covered that. The Battle of Baltimore sees the Star Spangled Banner written by Francis Scott Key. And there's fighting that continues in the south along the Gulf Coast right up until the war's end. And uh, the, this is the thing. This is where the Battle of New Orleans comes into it because when the war ended, the fighting actually continued because these armies don't know the peace settlement has been signed. We talked about the peace settlement last week. It's known as the Treaty of Ghent, and it officially ends the war. It's signed on the 24th of December, 1814, ratified by the British on, in, in London on the 27th, and then it's sent off to Washington to be ratified by the US, but it doesn't arrive until February. Of course, there's no bloody you know, Twitter or Snapchat descent, not that I don't think high-level government diplomats are sending peace treaties via Snapchat today. That isn't what I'm trying to say. You, you get the point. The point is it takes a long time for you to get back to Washington. And in the meantime, this means that the fighting, because these armies don't know that the war has ended, this fighting continues. So... It's in this period that the Battle of New Orleans takes place. And it takes place, of course, in New Orleans, in the Gulf. And the British, they have a very, very strong presence in the Gulf. About 60 ships under the command of a bloke named Admiral Alexander Cochrane. And the battle takes place when just under 1,500 troops uh, under the command of General Edward Pakenham land from these ships to attack New Orleans. New Orleans is under the command of Major General Andrew Jackson, who you may have heard of. Um, he obviously went on to become uh, president, but to be honest, he was a... Uh, a real nasty piece of work. He, he was a bit of a bastard, as, as we will have a chat about. Anyway, let's talk about the lead-up to the battle. The British, they're sailing around the Gulf, and they're looking for juicy, juicy targets. They're looking for these ripe Georgia peaches to try to pluck off the tree and really give it to it sideways, because they, they, they're they still obviously wanting to uh, to inflict as much damage on the Americans as possible. And New Orleans was uh, one of these juicy, uh, very, very juicy targets. It was at the end, uh, it was at the mouth, I should say, of the Mississippi, and it meant that uh, continuing this conquest upriver, if they were to take New Orleans, would be much, much easier. They could head up the, uh, head up the, the Mississippi River, uh, simple as that. So the way is blocked, however, of course, by this tiny little American blockade. Uh, there, are, there are five whole gunboats, five gu uh, gunboats against 60 British ships guarding the, the entrance to the lakes uh, around New Orleans, uh, the, the lakes that New Orleans sort of, it sort of backs onto there, uh, Lake Borgner and Lake Pontchartrain. I don't know how if I'm saying them correctly, but you know what? Borgner, who's naming lakes that anyway? On the 14th of December, so this is actually before the peace treaty is signed here, um, on the 14th of December, there are the 60 British ships, they rock up and they see they see these 
these five gunboats. I go, okay, we'll take care of this. They send out 40 or so of their own little gunboats, little longboats with cannons uh, strapped to them, who clean up the American gunba- uh, gunboats. No worries, mate. No worries at all. Wipe the absolute floor with them. Um, the British, obviously, can now access Lake Borgner because the, the, the way is clear. And so thousands and thousands of soldiers are brought through and set up a garrison about 50 kilometres away from New Orleans. Now, obviously, the whole area, it's a swamp. I don't know if you've been to New Orleans, but the, the area, it is, it is a big bayou. And this is where the problems begin for the British, because when they unload their cannons and all the other stuff, they've got all the heavy munitions and things off their ships, they all just sink straight into the mud. It's an absolute disaster for the British, an unmitigated disaster for these blokes. Um, so what they do is they, they sort of chill out in this garrison for about a week, trying to figure out how they're going to march thousands and thousands of soldiers through this, you know, sticky marshy, boggy, swampy morass. General John Keane has had enough. He goes, enough of this rubbish. I've found the solution. He says, what I'm going to do, I'll take a few thousand of these blokes and I'll go and scout, uh, I'll scout out, you know, the the defences, the blockade that uh, these Americans have put up. I'll scout it out and I'll see what's up. So he gets his little contingent and he heads up towards New Orleans with 1,800 soldiers and they camp out on the banks of the Mississippi about 15 kilometres away from the city itself. Now, he could have gone a lot closer. He chose not to uh, as the road to the city was under defended. So he could have got a lot closer, but uh, he, he doesn't. And this proves to be an enormous mistake. Uh, he decides, no, no, look, all good here, mate. Going to chill out, you know, just pop pop the feet up and uh, and see how things go from here. Because it uh, would have been a lot better for him if he'd gone a lot closer. The reason is uh, that this ends up being a mistake is because old mate Jackson, he hears of this encampment 15 kilometres away and he says, no way, Jose, we will show these British bastards what's what. And so he himself leads over 2,000 of, of his own blokes of this militia that he's in charge of to attack the British who are under Keane on the 23rd of December. The British, they're just relaxing, enjoying the river views, kicking back with a few cold ones, not expecting that they're going to get attacked. And the battle, it's, well, it's not a huge disaster for them, honestly. It's not this sort of, you know, absolute route that you might have expected. Uh, They weren't even forced to retreat, as a matter of fact, but it quickly showed the British something very important. It showed them that they had a real scrap on their hands. These scrappy Americans, they weren't going to just give up, uh, give it up and start waving the white flag around. They were really going to, you know, dig in and, and start to fight. And this is something quite unexpected expected for the British because they are expecting to waltz into the city, no worries at all, capture it, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am, but no dice. These Americans, they're going to fight. They've made that very, very clear indeed. So Keane, rather than, you know, taking a, a step back and sort of considering his options, he just absolutely he just doubles down. He, he doubles down uh, on this huge mistake. And while the Americans are withdrawing, he decides to play it safe by the water and not attack. So while the Americans are sort of scattered across two locations, he goes, "Okay, we won't go any further. We're not going to. Uh, we're not going to sort of try to strike while the iron's hot here." Uh, and this gives the Americans the time that they need to get everything ready for the battle that they now know is coming. Because obviously, you know, the, the, the British are here and, and they're going to, they're not, they're here to stay. And that means that the Americans are going to have to start to, to prepare things. So their preparations look a little like this. Now that Jackson knows where the British are camped out, he starts to make plans to really give it to them um, when they finally march on the city. He orders his blokes to build a fortification to the southeast of the city to defend against the attack because they know, he obviously knows where they're coming from. This fortification is made if you'll believe it, it is made of dirt. This is not a Three Little Pigs and the Big Bad Wolf story fairy tale here. Andrew Jackson has his men dig and build a fortification out of dirt, of all things. Now, it has eight batteries in it. Now, not that these aren't, you know, your bloody double A's. These are, uh, this is the, uh, a battery in, in the military sense. It's a collection of cannons and, and all sorts of other armaments. And each battery has 12 pieces of artillery in it. 
the biggest battery, your big, you know, so the, the big D battery that went in the torch when you were a kid when you were going camping, um, it's on the western end protecting the flank of the fortification that backed onto the river. So this is protecting against any uh, any naval assault there as well. It's over a 150 metres long, quite a long one here, and it spans the entire way from the Mississippi to the swamps to the east, blocking the way entirely. Uh, it's built in front of a canal, so any advancing British will actually have to get across a canal and then climb the fortification. So if you can imagine, if they approach it, first of all, there's a canal running uh, perpendicular to the way that they're going, perpendicular, perpendicular to the river, and then this big fortification of, of dirt. So they've got to climb through a canal and then over the dirt to get across. So it's, you know, it's, it's obviously not sort of space-age technology, but it's pretty good considering the resources that were available to the, to the Americans at the time. Now, on top of this fortification, Jackson gets every, together every single man who can recognise the uh, or identify the sharp end of a stick from the blunt end, uh, and he puts them all together on top of the fortification. He says, all right, you blokes, you're in charge of defending the city. Don't stuff it up. Now, this is not a large contingent of men. It actually wasn't, wasn't even 5,000, and uh, only about 1,000 of them are actually trained soldiers. The other, uh, again, are just this scrappy militia, and again, these, uh, these poor old Native Americans who always, always tend to be ready to lend a helping hand, irrespective of the fact they never really get paid their due for it. Anyway, they're ready to go. They're, they're, they're up and about. They're, they're going to they're gonna start uh, you know, trying to crack some skulls here. Um, and and <laughs> Jackson does quite a fair bit to try to bolster this number as, as much as possible because he even asks some of the pirates who have been operating in the area, right, to come and lend a hand. And amazingly, these blokes do. So they're approached by this representative of the US government and they say, listen, you pirate blokes, pop off those eye patches, get rid of those wooden legs, come and join us on the barricade here and, uh, and you know, lend out a hand in the defence of New Orleans. And for some reason, these blokes, oh, mate, no worries at all. No worries, we'll come and help you. Bloody eye me hearties, here we go. And uh, and they're going to they're going to help out fighting the British. There aren't enough guns to go around all of these blokes who are fighting there, so only soldiers at the fortification are given them. Everyone else has pitchforks and and this is not a joke, brooms and pointy sticks. That is really what they had to tussle with. So the picture I'm painting here, if it's not very obvious, is that these Americans, very kind of ragtag, scrappy group of blokes who don't have any business fighting in you know a real war here against real trained soldiers uh, from you know across the sea. Anyway, that's how it goes. So that's what the Americans are up to. Let's uh, let's jump over now and see what the British are doing here to, pr- to prepare for this uh, this battle. After Keane uh, gets, uh, you know, dealt with at this encampment, he waits for reinforcements. Again, he doesn't decide to, you know, try to pursue the Americans or, or try to divide and conquer. Uh, he, he waits for these reinforcements and they arrive on the 25th. So this is on Christmas Day, on the 25th of December, led by General Edward Packenham. Keane, Packenham and Admiral Cochrane, they all put their heads together and they decide on the plan of attack. They know that even after all these colossal stuff-ups that they've made, this one is its just its, it's going to be in the bag. They know this. The British, they know they're just going to walk all over them then grind them into the dirt uh, because it's only a few thousand bloody untrained militiamen with, with sharp sticks against the strongest and best-trained army in the world. These blokes have seen off Napoleon and um, you know a handful of American American you know, idiots on top of a, a dirt heel aren't going to stop them here. So what they decide to do, they decide to bombard the uh, the fortification on New Year's Day and they come within, well actually come quite close really, within a hair of capturing it. Uh, a bunch of Americans near the swamp had actually routed but the, uh, the British didn't realise this. So even after the bombardment wasn't fully successful it still did a fair bit of damage to the Americans. Um, now the, they decide to get these 40 longboats. You'll remember them, the ones that, uh, that got rid of the gunboats earlier. Those 40 longboats from earlier, they, get the, they decide to put them on the Mississippi River and flank the Americans from the land and the water. So the, the British, they start to dig out a canal through the swamp to transport the boats from Lake Borgner, but they can't do it because the canal keeps collapsing 
because it's in a swamp. They cannot keep this canal open long enough to get these longboats into the Mississippi River, so they're in big, big trouble there. This means that the British have to drag the boats across the mud and the dirt and the, you know all the, the muck of the swamp, meaning that when the battle finally starts, these boats were 12 hours late, and that proves to be critical, as, as we'll discover. So let's talk about the battle. The, the Americans are prepared. They've dug this fortification. The British are prepared. They've started bombarding the fortification from a distance, and they didn't capitalise on the gains that they made there as well. But on the 8th of January, 1815, once the entire British army is assembled there, the order is finally given to attack, and the British, they march on the fortification. They attack in darkness under a thick fog, which should have protected them from the American artillery, except... Of course, the fog lifts just as the British got close enough to the fortification to be seen, meaning the Americans are able to bombard the absolute crap out of these poor old approaching British soldiers. You know, they're sneaking up there, the fog's over, they're thinking, oh, it's so great, we've got all this cover like that. And then the fog just just lifts like, you know, you're blasting through the lake in God of War. And all of a sudden, they're, they're you know, having these, all these cannons pointed out from, from the battery. And that, yeah, they, the Americans open fire. And it is not a, not a pretty scene for the British there. Another enormous mistake that they make is when they actually managed to get to the fortification itself, when they finally actually reached this big mound of dirt, um, Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Mullins, who had one job, he had one job to do, he forgot the ladders. This bloke was was the ladder, ladder captain, ladder king, and he forgot to bring them. So all of a sudden, they're having to cross this canal and scramble up on their hands and knees, right, like kids at a bloody playground, trying to get up to the top of this big dirt mound. So British blokes, they're falling into the canal, and it's just absolute pandemonium. I'll tell you what, it's, an, it's, it's a total unmitigated disaster. Meanwhile, because the British boats haven't arrived to harass the western flank, the batteries there continue to scone the advancing British troops, rather than being tied up by having to target uh, things on the river, all of this this huge battery, you remember, is on the western flank. That's just they're just bombarding the uh, the British as they approach on the land. Now Jackson, he's up all he's all, he's there in the mix, and you can say what you like about him as a president, and certainly you know I think a lot of people are going to get behind the pretty heavy criticism that's leveled him as a, as a president. But as a as a commander and as a, as a war hero, I'll tell you what, he certainly earned his stripes there because he's right at the top of the fortification. He's riding around on his horse like this. He keeps giving the same order to all that. He's, he's geeing them up. He's getting them going, getting them nice and frothy, and he tells them one thing and one thing only, again and again and again: shoot the officers, shoot the officers. So there's all these American sharpshooters. Uh, at the top of the fortification, and they're aiming all for all the British officers. And as all these senior officers get cut down by muskets or grape shot or whatever it is, the best trained army in the world reverts back to its training, which is to wait for further orders. And as all the officers are getting mercilessly mown down, no further orders are forthcoming, are they? So the the British are just there paralysed by indecision. They don't know what to do. And the Americans, as a result, they repel Every single assault made on the fortification, every single one, with the exception of one, which we'll talk about right now. So every single thing, every single effort that the the British make to break through the fortification is completely unsuccessful, except for this one here. And it involves those boats that you remember I talked about before. So they do turn up after 12 hours of this battle being fought. The boats finally arrive. They've been dragged over the swamp by the British, and they finally turn up better late than never, I suppose. And they finally start to give some trouble to the western flank of the fortification. 
fortification. They managed to capture the battery on the western side of the river once these boats arrived, which was a bit of a miracle, to be honest, because after getting the boats to the Mississippi, the British didn't realise how strong the current was, and they were swept three kilometres uh, from where they were supposed to actually land, but they still managed to capture this American artillery by the river, and they get ready to turn the guns around on the Americans themselves. So this could be a decisive, a huge turning point in this battle. The Americans on the western side, they get ready to leg it because they realise what's going on and they, they have to, you know, they're going to have to start running around lickety-split here because if this artillery uh, in the battery is turned around on, on, on the fortification on the Americans itself, it's going to be absolute carnage. So with the, the loss of the main battery, the Americans aren't looking too good. But, 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 too late because the, the British... On the rest of the fortification, by the time that that, bat- that battery is actually captured, the British everywhere else have begun to retreat. So it is too late, even though they've, they've made this huge breakthrough here on the western flank with the, with the capture of that, that huge battery, it is no good and the rest of the British army is broken and so there's, there's no one there to support this, uh, this breakthrough. So the, uh, the defeat out east was so heavy that even this, this, uh, this minor breakthrough on the west wasn't enough to carry, it, carry them home. So, unbelievably, the Americans, they win the day. Against all odds, they carry the day because of this idiocy from the British Army. They forgot their ladders. They couldn't get their boats across. They obviously didn't uh, do their scouting or their, their, their reconnaissance properly. And so, as a result, they just made all these mistakes that, cu- that culminated in them losing the Battle of New Orleans. This ragtag bunch of untrade militiamen held off. A, 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 you know, a, well, an admittedly very poorly orchestrated, but an assault nonetheless from the strongest nation on earth at the time. So it was a huge, huge thing for national pride for the Americans, an enormous sort of, uh, you know, national awakening, a great point of pride for the for the young nation there fighting off the the British once again. All in all, the Americans, they only lost 13 lives and there were a further 30 Americans that were wounded. The British, on the other hand, lost 285 soldiers and 1,265 of them were wounded. Although, check this out, nearly 500 British blokes were taken prisoner after the battle. So 285 lives lost, 1,265 injured and 500 taken prisoner. And I'll tell you why. They had been pretending to be dead in the mud and the muck of the battlefield, right? And then had to rather sheepishly give themselves up once the rest of the army retreated. So there they're just having a snooze thinking, oh, it's all right. The rest of the boys will win it. Then I'll stand up and, you know, I'll, I'll, get, I'll get a slice of that glory pie for myself as well. But no, no, the Americans win and they <laughs> go around and start, you know, kicking all the uh, uh, all the all the, the so-called corpses there. Nobby knobs is there trying to nick their boots and all of a sudden realises that they're still uh, still alive and kicking. So 500 of these, uh, these, uh, these soldiers are, are rounded up as prisoners. The British, as a result of this, they decide they are absolutely dunsky with New Orleans. They don't want to. They don't want to hear or see any more to do with this city. They've had enough of this rubbish in Louisiana, and so they bugger off then to attack other targets in Alabama and and, and what have you. Um, but this doesn't last long, however, of course, because the war is already technically over. And and what's this? Old mate Napoleon is back on the scene as well. He's been sneaking around. He's about to escape from exile in Elba. And so the British force, just in time, they have to go back and take care of business back at home. The Americans, however, they are absolutely ecstatic. They can't believe their luck. Andrew Jackson becomes a national hero overnight because America, the US was expecting a defeat in New Orleans. And they they were, it was such a big deal that they won this battle, so much so that the 8th of January became a national holiday for the next few decades until 1861. But it's important to remember, it's important to remember this, however, of course, we can talk about this battle for, for as long as you want, but it was, at the end of the day, 
completely pointless because this war had already effectively ended two weeks beforehand. This huge embarrassment to the British was completely, completely unnecessary. And the battle, I mean, you know, despite being a great victory for the for the Americans, a huge, a huge embarrassment for the British was completely pointless because, as I said, the war was already over. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That's the story of the Battle of New Orleans, one of the more ridiculous things to emerge from the War of 1812, which, again, is really quite saying uh, saying something there. A couple of things to end the show, of course. If you want to jump on our website, uh, halfasthistory.net, it's there you'll find old episodes. Links to our Twitter account, links to the Patreon page if you want to chuck me a buck or two for these episodes. And, of course, uh, the uh, the email for, for the podcast uh, halfasthistory at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. I've still got stickers to give away. If you send me an email uh, with your address, I'll send you through some stickers. They'll come your way free, free of charge. Not a, not a worry at all. Just send them to you uh, if you want them. And apart from that, that's just about that. Leaving you with, uh, again, a question posed on Reddit, uh, as ever, uh, this week and every week. Uh, this week, it is a question posed by Reddit historian Linguist here. Now, we talked about Jackson today, and obviously many people know uh, he features on the 20, right, the $20 note in the United States, whereas Lincoln is on the 5. So, uh, Linguist here would like to know, when did they swap Lincoln and Jackson on the US currency, and why do some people still care so much about the Jackson 5? <laughs>